So, plagues. Whose idea was it to preach about plagues on Mother's Day in the midst of a plague? Yeah, it was mine. Not blaming anybody else for that. Not, not really. But, uh, but here we are. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Exodus, and plagues is what comes up next. So, so uh, we will, uh, we're going to dive in today. And, and here's my prayer. My prayer is that hopefully a deeper look into the plagues of Exodus might, might tell us something about our lives today, or might inform our lives today, our faith today, and in the midst of, of a plague. Let's, uh, let's pray. God of grace and, and wisdom, in these moments today as we explore your word, God, just widen our vision to see what you see. Open our minds to, to better understand your way and your word, and, and God, just expand our hearts to grasp and to share the fullness of your love and grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here at, uh, here at Clay Church, these uh, first few weeks of May, we are taking a virtual tour through Egypt, and, uh, and we're letting the land and its history inform how we understand the stories of the Bible, particularly the stories of the Exodus. So who's ready for a little, uh, little journey down the Nile today? Anybody ready for a little journey down the Nile? Just a, a note, uh, crocodiles, they've really moved them all south of the Aswan Dam, so you don't need to worry about crocodiles where we will be on the Nile River today. People are always asking that question. Did you see crocodiles? They're all in the south part of, of Egypt. So, uh, so this next picture, this is where Moses' mother put the basket in the Nile River with, uh, with Moses in it to, to save him. I'm just kidding. We have no idea where that is. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible that, that says where that is. But, but I snapped this picture along the Nile because it, it, gives us a, it gives us kind of a glimpse of what the land is like. We can imagine. I mean, this is what it would have looked like. The reeds along the, uh, along the water, uh, Moses' mother coming down with the basket and, and hiding it in the Nile among, among those reeds. The Nile River, it runs from... Uh, the headwaters, which are in Uganda and Ethiopia, and then they come together in Sudan, and then they, the Nile runs all the way through Egypt from north or from south to north. Um, and I, I'm probably going to mess this up as I talk about it. So this, the southern part of Egypt is called Upper Egypt because that's, elevations are higher, and then the Nile runs down into Lower Egypt, which is the north side. Of, uh, of it. So, I, what I was, if you don't, didn't get that, don't worry. There's Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt, and eventually they, they come together. And, uh, and if you're like me and you can't keep them straight, just think it's completely opposite. Upper is south and lower is north. I think I got those wrong again. Anyway. Now, I forget the exact number, but uh, um, it's like 90% of the people of Egypt, of the population of Egypt, live along the Nile River or in the Nile Delta. It's been true since the land was, was first populated. And you can get a glimpse of why from this picture, if you look, right, there's the river and, and all fertile, and then right behind it, you go straight to the rest of the landscape of Egypt, which is, um, is desolate desert, right? So the Nile is literally the source of life. Fishing, food, 
today um, moving crops, drinking water, the water for growing those crops. It's all centered right there in the Nile. And that knowing this fact will help us in a little bit because we're going to think about the plagues and, and the, we're going to talk a little bit about the first plague where the Nile turns red with blood and all the fish die, right? This is the, this is the center of life in Egypt. As we continue to think about Egypt, Egypt uh, in, uh, in Exodus verse 1, chapter 1, verse 11, we find this, this fact about sort of the harsh work, the slavery that has come across the Hebrew people. It says this, as a result, and this is the result of the, of the Hebrew people, the, the Israelites growing in population and, and influence. It says, as a result, the Egyptians put four men of forced work gangs over the Israelites to harass them with hard work. They had to build storage cities named Pithom and Ramesses for Pharaoh. Now, while we don't know for certain when the Exodus happens, there are many scholars that date it to the time of the Pharaoh Ramesses II. The Egyptians don't have this anywhere in their history, but but there's some reason to think it was during the reign of Ramesses II because of this verse in Exodus, which talks about the city of Ramesses. It didn't have that name until Ramesses II began to build it out and try to put his, his capital there. Egyptian history says that Ramesses II took this city and, and made it this new impressive capital of all of Egypt which would fit in with the idea of this use of slaves. That would often what happened. An empire would use their slaves for major building campaigns. We also know from the history of, uh, uh, that Ramesses II was willing to rewrite history for his own agenda. This, uh, this temple in southern Egypt is called Abu Simbel. And Abu Simbel was built by Ramesses II. It's in uh, upper Egypt, or, or the south part of Egypt. It's on essentially the traveling route from all of Africa up into Egypt. And it was built along this travel route, along the Nile, so that as people were traveling up, they would see this monumental temple built right into the mountainside, and they would go, oh, wow, this is an empire with power and means. Right? Inside this temple, there are a series of of etchings and carvings and artwork on the wall. And they tell of the great victory of Ramesses II at the Battle of Kadesh. He took on the Hittite army there and was a, it's renowned as a battle of, of chariots, one of the first battles with just armies of chariots facing one another. There's one small problem, however, with the pictures on the wall, which is the Egyptians didn't win the Battle of Kadesh. Now, this picture doesn't display it quite as well, but there are others that, that certainly point to victory. But, but history shows that at best, the battle was a draw. In fact, Ramesses would later be drawn into to signing a peace agreement with the Hittites, and he would marry the daughter of the Hittite ruler in order to seal that, that peace agreement. It didn't stop him, though, from writing his own story up there on the walls of his, of his great temple. So, so we don't actually have evidence of Ramesses II and Moses together, but it's not a big leap. Like what we know about Ramesses II would, would play into the idea that if, if a large group of Hebrew slaves um, found their freedom during his reign, he would, right, he would erase that history. He wanted to be known as the great 
the great Pharaoh of the empire. He wouldn't want people to know the story that he was defeated by the God of the Hebrews. And whether or not it was actually Ramesses II, one of the things that can happen when we, when we begin to learn this history in this context of Ramesses II and the other pharaohs and, and learn, their, learn their culture and their mythology, it can, be, it can begin to help us understand what happened in the Exodus. Right? One of the things we come to realize is that the pharaohs, they believe themselves to be partly divine. Right? They believe that they were becoming part of the pantheon of Egyptian gods. This next picture is inside the Abu Simbel temple. And uh, now, think about this for a moment. This was carved out of the side of a mountain, right? It's not like there was a cave there. Literally, they went in and, and you know, scoopful by scoopful of dirt, they, they carved all of this out of the, out of the sandstone, right? Realize that this was to say, look at what we can do. Look at what I, the Pharaoh, can do, right? If we go on in then to the Holy of Holies, we're going to talk more in a couple of weeks about this idea of holy of holies, but it's the innermost part of the sanctuary, or the temple. And in the holy of holies of Abu Simbel, there are four statues. From left to right, the first one is Ptah, an Egyptian god. The next one is the Egyptian god Amun-Ra. And then the next one, Ramesses II put himself in there. And then the one on the far right is Ra-Horakti, another Egyptian god. You know, kind of a, an aside that relates to this, um, this room in the inside of the temple, the temple was originally built so that um, one day a year, the sun lines up just perfectly. It comes all the way through the sanctums of the temple and illuminates this room. First, it lights up Ramesses II. And then as the sun comes on up, it glows and it lights up the gods to his right and to his left and leaves the god on the very far left, Ptah, who is a god of the underworld and of evil, in the dark. It's just, if you think about it, it's an incredible, right, 1300 BC. It's incredible engineering. But, but at a deeper level, it says, it's, it's believed that this was uh, traditionally happened on the day of the coronation of Ramesses II, to mark his coronation. It just says, look at me taking my place among the gods. Look at my, look at my power. It's true of all of the pharaohs of Egypt as they built these temples and, and these monuments. They put on the wall, almost all of them have something like the frieze that you see on the screen right now, right? One of their coronation with all of the gods passing their power to them, all the gods coronating them. So hold this background of the people of the land of the mythology of Egypt in mind, and then we enter into the story of the Exodus, and today we're going we're gonna to pick up where Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, right? Moses has been called to deliver this, this message to let the people go, and his brother has been invited, Aaron's been invited to go with them. And if you want to follow along in your Bibles today, we're going to start in Exodus 5, verses 1 to 2. This is what happens. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Rabbi David Foreman, in his book, The Exodus, You Almost 
passed over. He draws from rabbinic tradition and, and teaches along with them that the plagues did not have to happen. Think about that for a moment. The plagues did not have to happen. God's intent was not to punish Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. Right? God's intent was to be introduced to the world as Yahweh as the one God and, and creator of all that is. That was God's intention. And in fact, even after Pharaoh's first response, which you can't help but read with a sense of, of power and, and sarcasm, I don't know your God, I'm, I'm not giving in to your God. Who is this God? Even after you read that, Moses and Aaron go back to Pharaoh one more time in, in Exodus chapter 7. In this case, Right? They go back and they again ask for the people to go. And, and God seems to know that it wasn't going to work. And, and Pharaoh, again, is, is not giving in. And so Aaron takes his staff, as he's been told by God, and he throws it down and it becomes a snake. Right? Anybody afraid of snakes? You're just going to have to stick with me through this story. Um, so it, it becomes a snake. And then, and then Pharaoh, not to be outdone, has his advisors, his magicians, throw down their staffs and they through whatever wizardry, become snakes themselves. And it would be really easy to, to leave it here, Pharaoh's refusal and, and Moses and Aaron leave, and miss a little bitty detail. It's one verse, and we jump right into the plagues after this, but, but we shouldn't miss this detail, which is that Aaron's snake staff swallows whole all of the other snake staffs. It's as though God is saying one more time to Pharaoh before the plague start, look, it's, it's right here in front of you. Yeah, your magicians can do amazing things, but they can't do this because, right, here's one last sign, one last sign that all the powers of the world are ultimately answerable to me, to one higher power, the one true God. But Pharaoh... Pharaoh refuses to see it. He's going to cast his chances with his power. He's going to trust himself. He's going to trust his advisors. He's going to trust his military and, and his political power. He's going to trust the power of the gods of Egypt. And so the, the plagues begin. And I don't know about you, but I've often gotten kind of stuck at the plagues because, I mean, they're just awful. And, and I just think about all the suffering that, that had to have come from those plagues. Yet, if we take this context and understand the story with a, with a better understanding of, of Egypt, I, I think it opens up some, a deeper way of understanding the plagues and what God is doing in and through the plagues. We can begin to see the plagues, whether you believe they're literal or whether you believe their story, we can begin to see that the, the plagues are not just punishing Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. The plagues seem to be meant to inform, to, to teach, to show them something about God. Right? The plagues, you can think about it this way, the plagues bring the power of the one God into direct conflict with the gods and powers of Egypt, the gods and powers that Pharaoh was relying on. Here's some examples. We could spend a semester-long class, but let me, just, let me just highlight a few of these. The first plague, 
right? The Nile turns red with blood. It's really a direct confrontation with the, with the God of the Nile, Hopi. Hopi was crucial to life, just as the Nile was crucial to life. So this first plague shows the God of the Hebrews is more powerful than the very source of life that you think exists, Pharaoh. The second plague of frogs is a direct affront to the, to the goddess Hecate, the Egyptian goddess of fertility. Guess what animal form Hecate takes? Frog. And we're going to skip from here to the fifth plague, not because all ten aren't fascinating, not because all ten don't have something to teach, but because you have Mother's Day lunch plans or something probably that you want to get to eventually. So we're going to skip to the fifth plague, in part because the fifth plague has has something else fascinating going on within it. I'm going to just read what Exodus 9 says about this fifth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field on your horses, donkeys, and camels, and on your cattle, sheep, and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Yet his heart was unyielding, and he would not let the people go. In this fifth plague, we might notice first that God was still giving Pharaoh an out. God was still inviting Pharaoh to say, let my people go. Come to believe in me and and trust in this this message. Trust in me. But as Pharaoh keeps refusing, right, this next plague is again a direct confrontation with an Egyptian god, this time Hathor. Hathor was the goddess of love, of, of fertility, of provision. Her animal form was a cow. But this plague, it says something else as well. Right? Bad things happened in Egypt plagues and, and, and famines, they would come. The Pharaoh knew this, right? And they would write these off to the various gods. But this, this plague was different. This plague came at a particular time. God said, this is going to happen tomorrow, and it happened tomorrow, right? So Pharaoh can't just write this off as, as something that happens in the, in the scope of our world. There's a higher power at work here, And this destructive power isn't like any other that Pharaoh had witnessed. This this power is precise, right? It doesn't wipe out. Typically, if if a, a disease hit the cattle, they'd all die. But in this case, the Egyptian cattle died and the Israelite cattle didn't. This power is is precise. It's not like the gods of Egypt. And then one other sort of interesting note in this plague is Pharaoh's reaction. Right? If you were if you were the, you know, over an empire of people and you heard that all the cattle died, what would you do? Like, wouldn't you go out to your people and to see what happened to their cattle? But that's not what Pharaoh does. Pharaoh is more interested in finding out if the Israelite cattle are alive. That's where he goes first. 
plagues 6 through 10 that continue this, continue this pattern. We won't hit all of them. The seventh plague, though, is an interesting one. It contains hail, right? Hail comes down. And if you read that, it's, it's kind of bizarre. The hail has fire in it, right? It's hail containing fire. And if, if you're an Egyptian, you know that the gods of, of ice and hail and the god of fire, they don't do anything together. I mean, there is no possibility of them working together. So this has to be a higher power. And then one last example, the ninth plague. Ra was the Egyptian god of the sun. Ra, essentially the, the most powerful of the gods, the, the, the king of the gods. You can think of it like Zeus in the, in the Greek gods. The ninth plague is three days of complete darkness, right? Revealing that Ra, too, has no power. God has now shown his power over all of the Egyptian gods, all of the forces that Egypt knows. And yet Pharaoh still wouldn't give in. Pharaoh still won't believe. Or maybe to put it another way, Pharaoh begins to understand that there's another power at work, but, but Pharaoh refuses to acknowledge it or or trust it. Next week, we're going to explore Pharaoh's reaction in a little bit more detail. Because the Bible talks about the hardening of the heart. It's, anybody who's done Bible studies on Exodus knows that there's this wrestling match with what does it mean for the heart to be hardened. And sometimes Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And sometimes it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Like, how do we deal with that? Well, you'll have to come back next week. So we're going to look next week at the hardening of the heart. But, but this week, in light of, of God's teaching through the plagues of, of God's power, we might ask this question, right? What are some of the gods or the powers that we're tempted to turn to today in our own lives? To put our trust in before we put our trust in God today. I don't know about you, but when I read a story, I like to, anybody like to identify with the good guys? Like, don't you, you'd rather identify with the good guys than the bad guys in the story? But I wonder sometimes in the Bible if, if we shouldn't see our humanity in both and all of the characters of the Bible. And today in particular, like, are we so unlike Pharaoh, at least sometimes in our lives? Can we not be stubborn sometimes? Is it not true that sometimes we put our trust in powers other than God? So much of our trust in powers other than God that we lose sight of, of God in our lives? Are we not too tempted to put our trust in our own abilities sometimes to think I can do it and only turn to God as a last resort? Are we not tempted to put our trust in earthly powers, political power, military power, What are the voices that speak the loudest into our decision-making, particularly with big decisions or struggles in our life? I don't know what those powers are for you. I can name some of them for me. Fear. Too often, I decide by fear and then realize later there was another, another way. The power of money. The desire to have it, have enough of it. The influence of peer pressure, that power of keeping up with the, with the Joneses, as we sometimes say, 
right? The, the need to have a, a deck that looks like everybody else's deck but costs more than we can afford because, well, because everybody else has a deck that looks like that even though I don't sit out on the deck because I don't like bugs. That might be a little overly specific. Right? What powers is it is, that, that we sometimes put our trust in political power, military power, the power of work, the power of sports? What, what are the powers, the gods or powers that we're tempted to turn to before we give our lives to Jesus today? When God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, it's after the Israelites are out of Egypt, and, and God begins by saying, I am the Lord who delivered you from slavery in Egypt. And then the very next commandment that God gives says, you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, which if you're reading along as sort of one of the Israelites, you might think, well, that's kind of weird because um, we've already been convinced in this walk out of Egypt that you are the only God. I mean, you've told us that. That, that should be clear, so why, why would we begin to have, there aren't gods to have before you. But if we look at this commandment, the word for gods, uh, some of you were here last week, we talked about names of God, the word for gods here is El, um, and, and El denotes power. So literally this command says, you shall have no other powers before me. You shall have no other powers before me which invites us as followers of Jesus to ask, like, what powers are we tempted to put in front of the power of God's love in our lives? Now, I think there are lots of examples, lots of personal examples, but one of the things that's been on my heart all week, and I had a conversation with God and said, I, I don't want to talk about this one this week, but, um, but God said, this is an example of of how this plays out in our world today. When, um, and so God's Spirit just put this on my heart. If you've tuned into the news at all this week, you've probably seen the, the leaked document from the Supreme Court on Roe versus Wade. And, uh, right, the response, is, as we might expect in our culture today, has been divided and it's been, it's been angry. Um, it's been framed, as it always is, by sort of both sides of of this debate about abortion in our culture, about the termination of pregnancy. And uh, as I read and, and I prayed this week, and as I thought about Pharaoh's invitation, or God's invitation to Pharaoh, offered again and again and again to lay aside the powers of this world and to trust in God as the one power, I've wondered about the very way that we frame the abortion debate in our culture, in our community, right? As a, as a former political science major in college, this is one view, it's, it's my view, I know, but it, it sure seems like we have framed this debate as the idea is to get our side in political power so that we can, right, dictate that everyone lives according to our view because we know that our view is right. And again, as I look out at the world and process it through my Bible reading and my study, it feels like that's true of both sides, right? This quest for political power 
so that, so that we can inflict our way on everybody else. And I just wonder, as we think, as we think about power in the world today, what, what if that isn't the power that we should trust first? Not, not at all, but what if that isn't the power that, that we should raise to the top, that we should trust first? What would the path look like if we started with God's love in these conversations? What if our first goal wasn't to obtain ruling power or political power to inflict our way on everyone else? But what if our first step was to just to imagine how Jesus would treat this issue, would find a path together with love and respect and humility and grace and recognize the gift of life? Is it possible that Jesus would invite all of us to consider another way if we put our faith and trust first in God's love? I know I'm accused sometimes of being too naive. But as a pastor whose mission it is to call community together, to anchor community in God's love, to to dig into God's word together and, and live it together, I just, I worry that we too easily lose sight of God's love for all of God's creation when we get pulled into sides and the power of political agendas. See, God invites us again and again and again. Just as God invited Pharaoh again and again and again, and the Bible invites the followers of Jesus again and again and again to set aside the powers that demand our allegiance from this world and to trust in the power of God's love in our lives. We're invited to ask these questions when we examine the foundations of our lives, those things that are most important, that, that what, those things that motivate and drive us, is it the love of God that's at the center? When we're facing major divisions or, or struggles, we're invited to ask, what, what are the powers that are driving this decision in this moment? Is God's power center? Ultimately, we're invited to ask this question each moment, each day. What do we need to let go of? What powers do we need to let go of to let the power of Christ be central in our lives?